Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. And just to share with you, lovely purple people, we've had a bit of a palaver today, haven't we, Giles? Because it's taken me about 40 minutes to get online. What? Tell me first of all about the word palaver. It's one of my (laughs) favourite words. I use it a lot. Palaver. What does, I mean, it means a fuss and bother, I suppose, doesn't it? It means a fuss and a bother. And it's actually from Portuguese, I think. And it's a little bit like rigmarole. But one day we'll talk about the origin of rigmarole because that began as the um, ragman's roll, a very ornate and complicated list of signatures. But palaver came to us from the Portuguese palavra, but it's linked to a Latin word parabola, which made me think of parable because that's where that comes from too. And that meant a comparison, believe it or not. But the idea of a prolonged and tedious discussion uh, came about because it was used to mean a conversation, a talk between local people and traders, if you like, perhaps in a kind of pidgin English. But because that was quite involved and quite fussy, it came to mean a bit of a sort of long-winded process, which is exactly what I've had. And I'm so sorry that you've been patiently waiting in the wings for me while I try and update my Mac. If you are not too long, I will wait for you forever. As a character says, I think in uh, Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, I haven't, I've had fun waiting for you because I'm not at home today. This is why it's been an added palaver, because I am in central London and I thought I would, oh, come in to the offices of Sony where we are our producers and record from the basement in here. Even your basements. I'm happy in the basement. (laughs) I feel secure in the basement. And so this is where I am. I'm in a basement near Old Street Tube Station in mm-hmm. London, and you are back home in Oxford. But we we were together last week, and we haven't been actually physically together in quite a while, not since our last live show. No. And I thought of you uh, just this morning, actually, because in Oxford today, there has been apricity in abundance. Uh, and every time I think of that word now, I think of you. But no, you, you put on something really special for me last week. Well, it was a very exciting occasion. I am the Chancellor of the University of Chester. And I think the idea of a Chancellor to a university exists all over the world. I know it exists all over the Commonwealth, and I think it may exist in other countries as well. The Chancellor of a university is merely the the ceremonial head. The actual work is done by people usually called the Vice-Chancellor, sometimes the Pro-Chancellor, the Provost. They're the people who actually, on a day-to-day basis, run the university. But there usually is a figurehead called the Chancellor. Uh, Mm. And I don't know how far this dates back. Uh, I'm, as the Chancellor of the university, I'm occasionally allowed to nominate people to get honorary degrees. And, of course, they have to be worthy of it. There's a whole council and committee that sit in judgment. And I did nominate you, Susie Dent, because in my view, you your contribution to language and letters in the 20th and 21st century has been, well, to me, unparalleled. You are our country's leading lexicographer. I know you deny it. But what you've done is be both scholarly and reached out through broadcasting media, podcasts like this, your television work, your shows, etc., your books. You spread the word about words. And there's nothing more important than words and language. So you came to Chester Cathedral 
which is a, mm. a really beautiful building, isn't it? What did you make of the building? Oh, it was just stunning. I um, I have to say, I am a sucker for cloisters. <laughs> and that was my, you know, just, just kind of being walked through the cloisters in itself, quite um, apart from everything else that followed afterwards, was something really special. Well, it is special because there's a thousand years of history there in that building. Yeah. And we are very blessed that we can conduct our degree ceremonies there. And every year there's some 500 undergraduates who are going through, and I shake the hand of as many of them as possible. And occasionally we confer an honorary doctorate on somebody special. And last week you were that somebody special, and you had the cap and the gown and the trumpets played, and a public orator, I think that's what they call the person, who spoke about you. Were you, oh, were you yes. pleased with what he had to say? Oh, it was it was lovely. Although it has to be said, no, he was absolutely lovely. Uh, but to um, to get in a bit about our podcast, he mentioned the benefits of lalochesia and also said that he had overheard you and I speaking in such a fashion, which I think on that day wasn't strictly speaking. It wasn't true. true. It's never true. We we, <laughs> we, uh, we only ever use lalochesia, which is basically the uh, sort of use of bad language, obscene language, in an uncontrolled way? Is that what technically means? No, actually, I sort of slightly led you astray with with um, my ah. sentence. No, lalochesia ah. is actually the beneficial side of swearing. So it's the relief of stress, anxiety, frustration, pain, if you stub your toe, etc. It is easing that through having a good swear. Um, if you, it, Literally speaking, it's a bit like, um, it, it, it's about sort of, it's, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's, <laughs> you can tell I'm getting a Release bit tongue tied. It's all about um, almost ah. foul mouthed excrement. It's kind of, it's, it's sort of like dumping your verbal shit, I suppose, if we wanted to use foul language. And I know that's your least favorite word. But anyway, quite apart from that, it was, the encomium was, as they're called, was absolutely gorgeous. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm tearing up again. I was overwhelmed. I mean, I've, I've handed out literally oh, thousands yeah. of degrees and I've <laughs> handed them out to some very distinguished honorary doctorates, including yeah. our current Queen Camilla. Uh, really remarkable people, uh, you know, scientists, politicians, uh, entertainers, all sorts. But I, I don't think I've ever been moved before as I was. I just saw you there looking oh. so sweet and I thought, we've known each other for a long time. And I was just overwhelmed. So there you go. Oh, it, was, it was so lovely. I think... Really, it was the picture of me in that funny hat. Um, anyway, it was lovely and I'm genuinely really, really appreciative. And now for the first time, I can occasionally, on special occasions, call myself Dr. Dent. You can. I think you can. <laughs> and that, that sounds quite funny too. Dr. Dent. Dr. Dent will see you now. Well, exactly. Dr. Dent, we want to hear you now. And this is a podcast all about language. Mm -hmm. what, what are we going to talk about today? Well, the springboard for this actually was a, a lovely book written when I was staff at Oxford. University Press, um, home of the dictionaries. And it was a book commissioned by a great language writer called John Ato. And essentially, he uh, looked at the Oxford English Dictionary and explored it as an archive, essentially, of, of words relating to their time. So he took the 20th century, it's called 20th Century Words, it was published in either 1999 or 2000. And it, it looks at each decade and the words that came into, an, into existence, or at least a first recorded 
recorded in that particular decade. So it gives you this wonderful snapshot of events, preoccupations, fashions, you know, everything. And as we always say, a word can tell a thousand stories, even more than a picture, I think. Well, this is exciting. So let's begin at the beginning of the 20th century, see how far we get. Go decade by decade. This may take one episode, two episodes, three or four. Let's see how we get on. So do we begin the first 10 years of the 20th century? Would that be it? Yes. 1900? 1900 to 1910. Oh, good. Well, it's one of my favourite eras. It's the Edwardian era in this country because Queen Victoria in 1900 is still on the throne, Mm -hmm. but she dies in 1901 and her eldest son that people thought many people thought it was a ne'er-do-well, nicknamed Tum-Tum because of his wonderful appetite and his wide girth. Not very tall, but certainly very stout. He became King Edward VII and only had nine years as monarch, but they were surprisingly successful. Mm -hmm. So that's the Edwardian era. And I feel that I belong in that era. It's one of the eras I would love to have lived if I couldn't live now. Mm -hmm. My father, who was born in 1910, wished he'd had been an Edwardian. He was, in fact, born shortly after the death of Edward VII. So my father, in fact, was a Georgian. He was born at the very beginning of the reign of George V. What would be your favorite decade of the last 200 years, if you could live at any time? Gosh, that's really hard, actually. Well, I think, you know, in terms of of the sort of lexicography, I think the 1990s were really interesting and we will will come to those. But a lot of sort of revival, really, almost in the sort of flying in the face of previous decades of politics. And, And what's lovely is you can see the after effects of austerity, the after effects of war, the after effects of depression. But well, you, you can obviously see those imprinted on the language when they were happening. But afterwards, there's this kind of linguistic exuberance. It's like this sort of huge sigh of relief that it is expressed through language. And they're incredibly, these decades are incredibly colourful, springy, inventive, silly. Um, and I think those ones particularly um, I, I enjoy. Do we have a word from the year? 1900. I don't think we do, actually. I mean, we really oh. struggled with coming up with a word for the noughties, didn't we? And noughties was, was where it settled, the 2000s or whatever. So I don't think we have got a word for 1900 to 1910. For that decade, apart from it being the Edwardian era, yeah. seen as. Yeah. Um, but is there a word, though, that originated in that year, 1900? Some people might say, of course, that's the last year of the 19th century rather than the first of the 20th well, century. absolutely. Yes. Well, one of them would be relating to the motor car, because this ah. is when it began to make its first very noisy appearance on the roads. Well, actually, maybe not too noisy compared with current current days, but Accelerator came into being in 1900 and inevitably wasn't just applied to motor cars, a wide range of devices, but it soon became the term for the pedal that we still use today to increase our speed. So this is a good example of a word that was given a new application because it wasn't new in itself. It had been used with lots of meanings in the past, but in terms of controlling the speed of a motor vehicle, first recorded in 1900. And that would be true of the word tube as well, because a tube must have existed before, but T-U-B-E meaning the underground that comes from 1900 as well, doesn't yes, it? Yes, I'm absolutely right. I mean, it always, I marvel, given my enthusiasm for Oscar Wilde, mm. that Oscar Wilde travelled by tube. I mean, he wow. travelled on the London Underground. Yeah. He would, he would go from uh, near his home in Sloan Square to Charing Cross uh, to go down the Strand to one of his favourite hotels, the Savoy, but he would go by underground 
which became known as the tube, I think, in 1900. That's incredible, isn't it? And Queen Victoria referred in her journal to a tube for trains to run through. She says, we passed the famous Swilly Rocks and saw the works they are making for the tube, for the railroad. But yes, absolutely, the first underground railways, which came about in, I think, the 1860s. I'm not sure they were called the tube, but in 1900, it was applied to the London Underground Railway System. And apparently, the term tube here seems to have originated with the so-called Tuppany Tube, the Central London Railway. I don't know anything yes. about that, the Tuppany Tube. The Tuppany, this is why I think Oscar Wilde may have used this phrase, because he is, at somewhere, I think, we know that he travelled on what was called the Tuppany Tube. Ah, okay, that's fascinating. So I think it may, may, maybe it's earlier than 1900, because 1900 is the year that Oscar Wilde died, 30th of November, and not in London, but in Paris, where they didn't have the tube, they had the Metro. Uh, of course, um, yes. Uh, look, there's a French word I know, chauffeur, mm. meaning not somebody who heats things up, but somebody who drives your car. Mm. That's from 1902, isn't it? But chauffeur does mean heating up, doesn't it? So why is it a person who drives the car? Yes. So the word chauffeur actually came in the late 19th century, but that was in the general sense of a motorist and not someone who oh. drives your car in the current sense. Well, in French chauffeur, you're right, it means heater or a stoker because it was association with steam engines and early cars could be steam driven rather than have petrol engines. But it was then, you know, then became very specific in the person who who is paid to drive your car rather than any driver at all. Electronic, I think, is another one listed in 1902. Again, this relates to the, you know, the advances in motoring, all of that going on. Yeah, all of that. And obviously that's to do with electrons. And do you remember where electricity comes from? Because I always find that's absolutely, that, I, I love this, but that's from the 17th century. So electricity, very old as a word, but have we covered this? Well, if we have, I haven't, I can't remember it. Tell me. Okay. It actually comes from a Latin word meaning amber, because oh. rubbing amber causes electrostatic phenomena. So, uh, yeah, really quite sort of humble beginnings for something that sort of underpins modern technology. I mean, new things are coming along in this era. The moving pictures are arriving. Yes. When, when do they get called the cinema? As early as this or is that later? Yes. So cinema is this early 20th century as an abbreviation of cinematograph. Um, and it comes from a Greek verb meaning to move, which also gave us kinetic. And it was used, cin cinematograph came from the French brothers Auguste and Louis-Jean Lumière. Very good. Well, in my list, it's listed as coming in 1909, a cinema, okay. the word. All right, but yeah, I mean, quite possible. But, but my, I mean, you can correct me, my list also includes jazz mm. uh, as 1909. Uh, which is interesting. It is interesting. I mean, I think we associate the big jazz age with the 1940s, don't we? Um, Charlie Parker, etc. Yes, or even beginning in the 1920s. I yeah. don't make it as early as 1909, but could that be right? No, that absolutely is right. No one's completely sure where jazz comes from. Lots of suggestions have been made. I think some of them include an African origin, but the original meaning was something like liveliness or spirit, which is absolutely right, isn't it? But the first, and, and actually a baseball player used to call about the jazz ball, um, which sounds a bit like a baseball in, in cricket. But the first known musical use was actually from 1915. And it was quite also a little bit improper for a while because jazz was also used with sexual connotations and it might be linked, squeamish people avert their ears now, if you can avert your ears, um, it might be linked to jism and jizz. We don't need to go there. We don't need to go there, but you can see it's yeah. the idea of energy and pep. 
Energy and pep. I can see that idea. Yeah. Speaking of energy and pep, my list includes the word brazier as being the first decade of the 20th century. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. 1909, this one. Ah. But uh, you will find it in French and you will find it actually strangely included as part of body armour that was used in battle. Uh-huh. And the bras bit will give you an idea as to where it, where it sat. It was on people's arms. So, uh, yeah, a, a little bit odd. But 1909, it took on its meaning as a woman's undergarment. Um, and bras- Did people not wear? Did fe- I mean, I don't know much about women's fashion, though interestingly, uh, Oscar Wilde's wife was a champion of creating more normal wear for women, the reform of women's clothing, because in mm. Victorian times, there were ludicrous dresses with bustles that ended up getting caught in fires and there were a lot of deaths. I mean, really, a lot of people died by women standing too near the fire and their dresses getting inflamed. Uh, In in fact, this happened to some relatives. Maybe they were half-sisters of Oscar Wilde, yeah. Anyway, she, Constance Lloyd, later Constance Wilde, was one of the pioneers of uh, women's dress reform. Mm. And I think... The the brazier, abbreviated to the bra, is a 20th century phenomenon that was trying to make life more comfortable for women. But I, I'm I don't know much about it. Do you know anything about it? Well, there was the, the general idea of having a sort of bodice or what they call in French soutien gorge is from the late 19th century. So in 1885, there was um, a wire dress that kind of included this sort of support. But the kind of bra that we know it as today that will be recognisable to modern eyes was actually <laughs> made with a pair of hankies, believe it or not. And oh. that was patented in 1914. So I think a brasier was more of a sort of bodice than it was the bra yeah. that we would know it as today. But yeah, we're, I mean, there are so many different words for, or just so many different forms of underwear that maybe we should, if we haven't already, oh, I think we, we may must, have actually talked about undercrackers. I think we like, have. Yeah, we must have done. <laughs> Underpinnings, undercrackers, all of that. Yes. Of course, soutien-gorge in itself is a bit of a euphemism. It's a real euphemism. soutien means to hold up. Support, yeah. sustain. Yeah. And gorge means throat. It does. So it's rather <laughs> missing the... Um, yes, the anyway. relevant body part, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And I remember when I was a schoolboy, it used to be said that somebody with the name of Helmut Titzlinger had invented the original <laughs> bra. But uh, there is some basis of truth in that. I mean, is I that? think. Yeah. Have you not heard that before? I've not, no. I'm going to I know it, it sounds a bit unlikely, but there may be relatives. There may be Titzlingers <laughs> listening uh, across either in Germany itself or who have gone to Australia. Do look it up. Okay, so there's no Titzlinger in the OED. Come on. But, Come on, look it up. Look it more deeply. Uh, well, I'm I've sure just I've not looked invented up. this. Okay, let me look at advanced search. This is from my school days. I admittedly it was 60 years ago, <laughs> but it stayed in my head because it's such a great name. Helmut, ah, yes, this is Helmut, Dr. Helmut Stitzlinger, inventor of the Brazier. No, I think this is, uh, I'm afraid that I think someone's been having you on, but I will just check for you. Well, if, if somebody listening is an expert on... Um, uh, female underpinnings. Oh, here we go. And would like to put us right. Ots, oh, Otto say- Titzling is a oh, fictional, a fictional character, oh. apocryphally described as the inventor of the brassiere in a 1971 satire called "Bust Up: The Uplifting Tale of Otto Titzling." So I'm afraid <laughs> it is a pun. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, dear. Well, there you are. It shows, shows what lingers in my stupid mind. But if you want to improve on that, and you've got some interesting things, stories to tell from your country or culture, purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com is where you should write to us. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. We're exploring the language of the 20th century. And we've not quite exhausted the first decade because there are some interesting words still that I want to mention that come from it. I'm told that geriatrics, I think, Mm. I suppose, the study of old people, Mm. is a word that dates from 1909. Yeah. Does that strike you as true? Yeah, I find it quite sad that geriatric has taken the turn that it has. And um, it's now become a descriptor for anyone considered past it or even a bit infirm because actually it goes straight back to a Greek word meaning old age. And you have gerontology, which is a study of old age or the process of aging. And then you have a gerontocracy, such as we have in the US, which is governed by older people. But geriatric has not had a good outcome in my view. Maybe that's for another discussion. But yeah, that's the early 20th century and, for sure. And what is, what's the origin? Where do we get the, the geront? Where, what that's does it. That the mean? geras in Greek means old, old age. Simple as that. Yeah, Very simple good. as that. And you mentioned somebody being with it there. Mm. I know that I remember from the 1920s, somebody called Clara a bow, I think it was known as the The it it girl. girl. Yes. But does the idea of of something being it, meaning it's the latest thing, it's it's the thing, that that comes from uh, the early years of the 20th century? It does, yeah. And it's the it by itself just meant sex appeal. And I think there was, it girl got another outing, didn't it, with uh, Tara Palmer Tomkinson, if I've got that right, who very sadly died. But she, when she was, you know, in all the celebrity pages, she became the new it girl. But as you say, Clara Bow was the the first to be given that title. So the idea of it is sexy. So yeah, you say someone, sex appeal. Oh, yeah. She, she's, she's, she's got, got it. it. It's like the oh, X, very good. X factor, isn't it? It's the kind of that unknown. So the phrase with it doesn't isn't connected. I don't think so. If you're with it, I think you are just sort of aware of your surroundings. You have, you are gormful rather than gormless. But no, I don't think it's connected. But it is just all about that sort of indefinable something, isn't it? Camp, the notion of being camp, mm. that's an early 20th century word, isn't it? Yes. First recorded by a writer who, well, J. Redding Ware, he was called, and he wrote Passing English of the Victorian era. But no one completely knows where it comes from. But um, yeah, well, I was just talking about being gormful. You know, you can also be kempt, one of those lost positives, which is from the German gekempt, meaning well combed. Uh, there is a dialect word which is quite similar, meaning kemp, 
But instead of meaning well turned out, it means uncouth, actually. It means just a bit all over the place, bad mannered and sort of scruffily turned out. So if that's the case, and if that is the origin of camp, it didn't start out as being a particularly nice descriptor, but we don't know where it came from. Came from it certainly flourished in theatrical slang and we associate it with the language of Polari, I'm sure. So what, yeah, what, what is your definition for somebody listening to this who doesn't know what the word camp means? What does the dictionary definition give you as opposed to camp as a campsite where you might go out camping yeah which is what which is the is connection between the no different what is the no connection, connection to those at, at all. all so um a camp is in setting up camp or you know lodging in some place that is actually from the campus martius in rome which mm. if you remember was used for athletic practice it was used for military drills the field of mars the field campus of martius. mars exactly yeah. um and campus in latin meant level ground particularly a sort of wide expanse of it uh, which is why a university campus has that sense as well camp in this sense as i say pretty unknown, but it may, I mean, perhaps it comes from the idea of striking a pose and setting up camp in that way, but we're not completely sure. But the dictionary definition is deliberately exaggerated and theatrical, and then extravagantly flamboyant or affected. Now, what's interesting about this is people think of it as having a gay connotation. Definitely, yeah which it does nowadays, mm. but I wonder if it did at the beginning because the the notion of camp with people like Oscar Wilde and there was a, a musical called Patience in which aesthetes like Oscar Wilde were satirised by Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm. The idea of being very theatrical in your dress and in your manner was not necessarily associated originally with homosexuality. People like Lord Byron, the poet from an earlier part of the 19th century, he was very theatrical in his dress and manner. And uh, you have restoration drama, plays in which people are being theatrical. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's largely because of the trial of Oscar Wilde that this kind of mannerism then becomes associated with also being gay. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, So I think think he may be responsible for the, the transition. Gosh, okay. That's lovely. And that may well be illustrated in the, you know, if you look at all the quotations in the Oxford English Dictionary, we'll have a look. But it was certainly, you know, an important decade. And it it was fitting that in this opening decade of the 1900s, so many words marking these new things, new technologies, new ways of living um, were marked. We've got to 1910. Let's do another decade. This is the decade in which my father was born in Hoylake in Cheshire mm-hmm. in uh, July 1910. And uh, he would be, he was a, a middle-class person and he was a, a lawyer. His father was also a lawyer. Now we'd call the way he spoke posh, but actually it was just straightforward middle-class. I say that because I think the word posh is a word from this decade. Am I right? Posh, uh, yes. And um associated with one of the most uh, notorious folk etymologies in oh, yes. English. Oh, yes, out, starboard home. Yes. But not true at all, is it? Well, there has been absolutely no evidence supporting that at all. And the more likely etymology is that it comes from a much older slang term for a dandy, which the, uh, was also gave us um, slang amongst thieves for money, because if you were dressed in a flamboyant way, you probably had a bit of dosh. So we think that's where it comes from. Nothing to do with the ships between England and India. So, you, that posh is not an acronym. SOS is an initialism that I think dates from 1910. 
Does it stand for Save Our Souls? What does SOS stand for? Well, SOS, if I am right, was chosen because it's easily transmitted and recognised in Morse code. And then once again, folk etymology stepped in and made it an abbreviation for Save Our Souls. So, uh, yeah, so it didn't actually begin that way. That was just uh, a backronym, if you like. Very good. Or there are umpteen words we could cover here, including the word umpteen, which I think is from that first second decade. Oh, I love the word umpteen. And actually, that's so relevant because um, that is also rooted in Morse code because signals regiments in the army would use umpty to be the dash in Morse code and the dot was called an iddy. So you had iddy umpty as a, as a slang name for Morse code itself. And Apparently, one slang dictionary at least states that the idea of Idi Umpty began in India when the Moor system was being taught to troops over there. But whatever happened, it gave us umpteen for an indefinitely large number because if the umpty indicates the dash, that again is, is, could mean anything. And then it developed into umpteen on the model of 13, 14, etc. And that was in the early 1900s, as you say. You know so much. It's amazing. I know that cinema came from the first decade. Mm-hmm. And I looked this up. Movie going to a movie, uh, and movie meaning a film, something you'd show in a cinema. Uh, I've got 1912 as the year that word was first used. Yes. So moving picture earlier than that, 1896. But yes, as an abbreviation, movie. It's still in the US, you know, mainly in the US, but actually we have really, I I think anyone who watches Netflix these days will probably talk about watching a movie, not watching a film. Mm. Yeah, that's my guess. I was reflecting when we were standing together last week in Chester Cathedral, how sadly the world has not changed much in a thousand years. There is still war. Mm. There are still refugees. Yeah. And I'm amazed to find that the word refugee only dates from 1914. Can this be true? Because, of course, there have been people fleeing, seeking refuge for literally for the whole of history. So how does this word come about in 1914, refugee? Well, yes, let's start with um, with refugee, as you say. So the OED's first reference of this particular word is actually much, much earlier, 1628, when it was used for a Protestant who fled France to escape the religious persecution in the 17th and 18th century. So it was very, very specific. Then in 1692, a person who's been forced to leave their home and seek refuge elsewhere, as we would use it today, religious persecution, political troubles, natural disasters, etc. You also have a specific use during the American Revolutionary War. But I think it really, really came into its own during the First World War, which is probably why it's listed in that opening decade, because obviously this was a decade of enormous horror and slaughter. And, you know, it's that obviously that shadow that just you know, sits over the whole of this decade of the 1910s. We we don't actually have a word for the 1910s either, but, you know, massive, massive scale. But reflecting on life, you know, Susie, I think I'm trying to remember who it was who couldn't work out whether peace was the interval between wars or wars were the interval between peace. Some famous statesman observed that. I mean, there's been horror for years. But as you've told me often, war periods, though, do bring new words into the language. Sabotage is also mm. on this list. Yeah. What does sabot, I know, is French for a 
clog or a shoe, but that probably has got nothing to do with sabotage. Where, where does sabotage come from? Um, well, it does actually, again, one of the most famous uh, etymologies, and actually there is some truth in this one, so not so much of a, a folk etymology. So sabote in French means to kick with sabots, to kick with your clogs, and so oh. by extension meaning to willfully destroy something. And when in the 19th century, French uh, workers took action against the introduction of new technology, this happened during the Industrial Revolution as well, didn't it? They would destroy machines and tools. And uh, they wore traditionally these wooden clogs in the factories. It's not quite true that they would throw the clogs into the machinery to stop them working. But the whole metaphor of, you know, the idea of just destroying things in these clogs gave us the idea of sabotage. And it first appeared in English, as you say, first decade of the 20th century. And it actually was referring to a court case in Paris. So it was still French by then. And then um, by 1916, the Sydney Morning Herald was reporting on a labourer on an Australian sheep farm who was threatening sabotage against their employers. I think this is a wonderful way of exploring language, Mm. decade by decade. Mm. Uh, Well, look, Let's leave the 1920s, the roaring 20s, until next week. Okay. Um, and then maybe people can write to us and suggest what decade they'd like us to explore. I, I'd love, I was thinking about the end of the Wars of the Roses the other day uh-huh. because I was re- I was reflecting on how in this country we've had civil war. There's mm. civil wars going on in, you know, in other parts of the world as we speak. Mm. Uh, but we can't sit in judgment on others. We've had our own civil wars and we had the Wars of the Roses mm-hmm. that really came to a head in 1485 with the Battle of Bosworth Field where we had the Yorkists and the Lancastrians fighting one another yeah. over goodness knows what, the, the horror there. Mm. So maybe people can write in and say, would you explore the language of the 1480s or the 1620s or anyway we're going to do the 1920s next time but let's if people want to write to us it's purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com have people written to us this week? I know they have. Oh, they letters? always, always do. Um, yes. So we have a lovely email from Andy from Chicago. And actually, he has yeah. something for you in here as well, Giles. So he's a new listener. Um, he heard it referenced. I think Jimmy Carr mentioned it on 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. And he hasn't stopped listening to it since, which is great news. So he has a question for me. He was wondering if I could explain how portmanteau came to mean a combination of two words. Mm. He says as a kid, he didn't know what that meant. And so they called these word blends or word mashups conlinks, which is quite nice. So I will come to that. And then for you, he has a poem that he just happened across and it's well known to linguists, Charles, and you probably will be familiar with it. It's called The Chaos. Do you know this by Gerard Nostrenité? I do know. It's an extraordinary poem. It is. Oh, Dearest creature in creation studying English pronunciation, I will teach you in my verse. Sounds like corpse, core, horse, and worse. <laughs> oh, it's it's a brilliant. I will uh, keep you, Susie, busy. Make your head with heat grow dizzy. Tear in eye your dress you'll tear. Queer, fair seer, hear my prayer. Pray console your loving poet. Make my coat look new, dear. Sew it. Just compare heart, hear, and heard. Dies and diet, lord and word. And it is all about idiosyncrasy. 
what is it idiosyncrasy and eccentricity of the English language which I'm not really mastering today Um, and it's yeah it's an absolutely brilliant one Um, it's a gem it's a very long it's a very long poem so Mm -hmm. don't offer to learn it by heart until you can but it ends rather amusingly don't you think so dear reader rather saying lather bather father finally which rhymes with enough though through bow (laughs) cough huff sow tough hiccup as the sound of sup. My advice is, give it up. (laughs) Yes. So it's brilliant. So in case anybody wants to go and read the whole thing, it's called The Chaos and it's by Gérard Nolst Trinité. But back to Andy's question about portmanteau. Well, you will probably know this, Charles. We we talked about this a little bit. Lewis Carroll, one of your heroes, he actually gave us the word portmanteau for these kind of word blends. And it's based on the use of the word for a folding suitcase or it's a large trunk, essentially, usually made of very stiff leather and it opens into two equal parts. So the idea is of two parts being folded together, just as his word chortle, a blend of chuckle and snored, are blended together to create this new portmanteau. Yeah. Another one here. This one comes from Gavin. I don't know where he lives. What's Gavin got to say? Dear Susie and Giles, can you explain the origin of the phrase whale of a time, W-H-A-L-E, or is it whale of a time, W-A-I-L, which makes more sense as you're more likely to wail or scream if you're having a good time than act like a whale, a mammal not noted for its excitability. And uh, there's something for you in a minute, Giles, too, which I'll read out because you'll be too modest to do so. But Gavin, just to let you know, it is a whale of a time as in the mammal, and it's all about size and dimensions. It's all about having a hugely good time and you know a colossal, colossally good time. So it's simply large or significant. Did you know, Susie, that mm. whales are amongst the most intelligent creatures? I can I didn't, well I didn't imagine know that. that. But the vet on this morning, which is a television program I do, Dr. Scott, he was telling me that the most intelligent creatures include whales and dolphins and pigs. I think he put them even ahead of uh, dogs. But isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Wow. Um, That's lovely. But no, they are absolutely fantastic creatures. Okay, Giles, this is the bit from Gavin for you. Giles, I seem to recall from an early episode that you doubted your ability and confidence as an after-dinner speaker. I must say that you are the best speaker or turn I've had the pleasure of listening to. I go to many events with after-dinner speakers and you were the only one who was mingled with the crowd before the event to gather gossip and give industry lowdowns to make your speech both entertaining and relevant. I say this despite being the butt of one of your gags. As an aside, is the butt in this phrase a barrel or a posterior and why? But um, that is high praise indeed. That's wonderful praise. Thank you very much indeed, Gavin. Yes. Now answer, answer the question, Okay, Susie. well, but, so let's take the different meanings of but. The one meaning an end as in a cigarette butt or even the, the rifle butt that you hold, that's related to a Dutch word bot meaning stumpy. It's the same word as the butt for your bottom, Uh, really. That goes back to medieval England. But butt, as in the butt of a joke, as Gavin says he was here, thanks to you, is from an old French word, but, which means a target, or it did, in archery. And of course, today it's also used for a goal in football. So if you are the butt of a joke, you are the target of it. Very good. Our listeners are so brilliant. And you know, 
We are approaching our 250th episode wow. of Something Rises Purple. And it is all thanks to the listeners for, you know, the wonderful purple people. So for our anniversary, we want to make it all about you. So if you've got an etymology query, a question of any kind, big or small, just write or send a voice note. And uh, our email address is purplepeople at somethingrhymes.com. And we'll try to answer as many as we can in that special 250th episode. Is there a word for 250th? Like, ah, there must be. There must be. There must yes. be. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll leave it with me. I'll I'll leave it with you. Well, I'm going to. You haven't got time to think about it now because no. it's time for your trio. My trio. Okay. Well, my first trio is not. I hope an adjective that anyone would direct at our podcast. Nugatory. Nugatory oh. means trivial or not worth bothering about. So it's N U G A T O R Y. Nothing to do with nougat, which goes back to the Latin nux, meaning a nut. But yeah, if something is nugatory, don't bother. The next thing is this is this was a new one to me actually viscerotonic okay so viscero as in visceral v-i-s-c-e-r-o tonic and this describes curiously a type of personality which is comfort loving sociable effervescent and easygoing so i just was so lovely that there is a word for it so it's all about kind of you know your your sort of gut instinct almost and and a sort of personality that just lets it all hang out i really like that and the final one is interesting so we talk about pugilistic and pugilism which is all to do with fighting with your hands well the idea of your hand is also behind the word pugil p-u-g-i-l and it simply means a pinch of something or a handful of something so I didn't even know that one existed either. So I, I love my trio. It sends me off in all sorts of directions. And how do you manage to remember these words? That, for me, is the challenge. I think a pugil is, an, I suppose, by using it. It's like yeah. knowing how the computer works. There's things on it that my grandchildren could do instantly. They show me, and then I've forgotten immediately. Yes. It's, it's repetition. It's keeping using. I'm going to talk about a pugil of salt in the future. Okay, perfect. Yeah, the answer is I I don't, the trouble is the more I say to myself, oh, I just am never going to remember that, the more it actually becomes a thing that I can't remember it. So the 75 times table on countdown is has been my bete noir for ages because I told myself I couldn't work out 775s in the space of however, three seconds. And so lo and behold, whenever it comes up, I get this absolute block until I just tell myself I'm being stupid but yeah, don't don't ever say to yourself, I'll never remember it, because unfortunately, it's self-fulfilling. Lovely. <laughs> well, look, uh, I'm going to have a poem for you now. Lovely. And I carry with me an anthology of poems that I collected myself. It's called Dancing by the Light of the Moon, and it's published by Penguin. And essentially, I put into this all my favorite poems, particularly poems that I felt would be enjoyable, not just to read, but also to learn or to speak out loud. And I wanted a poem this week that came from the first 20 years of the 20th century. So I turned to the First World War poets, the great war poets, as they're known. And I came across this poem by Siegfried Sassoon that's in my collection. It's called Idyll. It isn't strictly a war poem, but it is a poem of farewell. And it goes like this. In the grey summer garden, I shall find you. With daybreak and the morning hills behind you. There will be rain-wet roses, stir of wings, and down the wood a thrush that wakes and sings. Not from the past you'll come, but from that deep where beauty murmurs to the soul asleep. And I shall know the sense of life reborn 
from dreams into the mystery of morn, where gloom and brightness meet. And standing there, till that calm song is done, at last we'll share the league spread, choiring symphonies that are joy in the world and peace and dawn's one star. Oh, I think that's one of the most beautiful ones you've ever read on here, actually. Mm. What's its name? It's called Idyll. Idyll. I-D-Y-L-L. Remind me what the word Idyll means. It means an Idyll, a perfect moment, a special place. What is an Idyll? Yes, so um, an Idyll um, in literary terms is a picturesque scene or incident, especially a pastoral one. But in Greek, it meant a sort of a form or a picture. So it was like a sort of snapshot, but it's acquired all sorts of positive images. So it's a really happy, peaceful, picturesque period or situation, usually idealised, often unsustainable, but still something that is pitch perfect in your head. Good. Well, we think that's a pitch perfect poem. Only 12 mm. lines by Gorgeous. Sigrid Sassoon. Born 1886, didn't die till 1967, but we associate him so much with the early years of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, he also wrote some wonderful autobiographies, which I recommend. Anyway, that's my poem for this week. That's our lot for this week, isn't it? It is our lot, sadly. But I think we've kicked off, haven't we? Something that could run and run. I really enjoyed it anyway. So we will be continuing with our 20th century words. And as Giles says, if there are other decades or periods in time before then, um, do let us know if you'd like us to um, explore them. And if you did love the show, please follow us wherever you get your podcast. Please subscribe to us and recommend us to friends and family if you think they would enjoy it too. Something Rhymes With Purple is a Sony music entertainment production produced by Naya Deo with additional production from Naomi Oikyu, Sophie King, Hannah Newton, Chris Skinner, Poppy Thompson, very much in command today, and Matthias. Matthias. Thanks to Matthias for getting me online in the first place. I've got some Matthias Rosé to give him later. <laughs>